Good evening, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving, and welcome to our sixth class in the Return of the King series. Today, of course, we're going to finish the book, though not the class. We still have two more classes left, uh, because I want to be talking about the appendices uh, for a little bit. It, uh, um, I remember the first time... Uh, well, I don't know if it was the very first time, but I remember very early on in my Lord of the Rings reading experience that... Uh, I was su so surprised to come to the end of the book when I did. That is because I still had so much, so many pages uh, squeezed between the fingers of my right hand as I was reading. Uh, you know, I was like, wait, 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 the end? That's the end? What, what's all this then? And of course, uh, all that is the appendices. We're going to talk about that over the next couple classes. But today, we're going to talk about endings. Uh, and I want to start today's class with a, a, a very simple but excellent question, um, which was asked, uh, which was sent to me by Matt Shaw, who was asking, could we talk about the difference between eucatastrophe and deus ex machina? That is, of course, uh, an accusation that's frequently made against Tolkien, especially, of course, with the eagles. Um, you know, that uh, having eagles swoop in and save the day always seems like a deus ex machina, and of course, Tolkien people are like, no, 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 it's a eucatastrophe. What's the difference, exactly? Wherein lies the difference between those two things? So first of all, I want to make sure that we understand uh, sort of the definitions of those terms. The term deus ex machina, which means, which is Latin, which means God out of the machine, or God from the machine, um, a God from the machine, is a reference to Greek Tra tragedy, and it was a it was a relatively common technique um, to bring about a resolution of the plot at the end of a Greek play by having some deity step in, you know, one of the Greek gods um, step in and alter the course of things. Um, but and uh, and often they would come in by some kind of mechanical contrivance. That is, either there'd be a crane that would lower them down, apparently from the sky, or there would be a trap door would open and they would come up from the uh, from the, the the from under the stage. But anyway, the you know the de the the divine being would miraculously appear and would uh, would set things right. Um, you know, as for instance. Uh, Heracles coming out uh, at the end of a play, you know, one character who is just about to die because she has chosen to sacrifice herself for her husband, and Heracles will come out and, like, take her out of the fire and and uh, say, no, it's okay, you don't have to sacrifice yourself, and they go live, in, go live happily ever after, and that's it. Um, and this technique was frowned upon, and you find a lot of uh, very early literary critics complaining about this tendency to sort of bring in these divinities who just by sort of fiat um, basically inter almost interrupt the plot uh, and kind of take things over and make things get resolved in a particular way. Um, and uh, just to give you a to give you an example of this, not an example of the Deus Ex Machina, but an example of the critique of Deus Ex Machina, uh, here is uh, here's Aristotle in the Poetics. Um, talking about about an ending, how an ending should work, and why Deus Ex Machina is such a bad idea. In the characters, too, exactly as in the structure of the incidents, the poet ought always to seek what is either necessary or probable, so that it is either necessary or probable that a person of such and such a sort say or do things of the same sort, and it is either necessary or probable that this incident happen after that one. It is obvious that the solution of plots, too, should come about as a result of the plot itself. 
and not from a contrivance, as in the Medea. This was a famous example of deus ex machina that people hated. And in the, pa- and in the passage about sailing home in the Iliad. By the way, I'm not sure what he's talking about there. Um, I mean, if he means the reference when, uh, oh, the, the, when like they all start, I'm not sure what sailing home passage he's referring to in the Iliad. Um, uh, because nothing, no sailing home passage that I can think of in the Iliad really seems to fit the deus ex machina pattern, actually. Um, but anyway, sorry, that, that's a little aside, my own personal puzzlement about what Aristotle is referring to there. A, a contrivance must be used for matters outside the drama, either previous events, which are beyond human knowledge, or later ones that need to be foretold or announced. For we grant that the gods can see everything. There should be nothing improbable in the incidents. So you see what Aristotle's primary focus here, what he objects to in a deus ex machina, what he thinks is not a good idea, is when some external force, which is not only outside of the sort of the set of characters that we've had, um, but outside of all of the causes, outside of the entire trajectory um, of the story, that this should uh, that this should just kind of come in from outside and interrupt everything and uh, and and make the ending different than the whole play was sort of pushing towards. It's that kind of externality to it. It's that kind of um, inter- that sense of interruption. And you see, you know, with all of his, you know, you know, ought to always seek what is either necessary or probable, so that it is either necessary or probable that a person of such and such a sort say and do things of the same sort. You can see his focus, right? You can see what he thinks makes a good story. That everything should build on, uh, you know, that one thing should build on another within the story, and that the um, uh, and that the you know the the, the characters should, should should stay in character and should follow through with you know with what they're um, wanting to do, but um, anyway, uh, that's um, that's so again we can see what his objection is to Deus Ex Machina. So now I want to think about these things, this sort of elements of Deus Ex Machina, and bring that back to what Tolkien says about. Um, Eucatastrophe. Here's his description of Eucatastrophe in On Fairy Stories, and many of you will be familiar with this passage. The consolation of fairy stories, the joy of the happy ending, or, more correctly, of the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn, for there is no true end to any fairy tale. This joy, which is one of the things which fairy stories can produce supremely well, is not essentially escapist nor fugitive. In its fairy tale or other world setting, it is a sudden and miraculous grace, never to be counted on to recur. It does not deny the existence of discatastrophe, of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat, and in so far is Evangelium, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. It is the mark of a good fairy story, of the higher or more complete kind, that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventures, it can give to child or man that hears it, when the turn comes, a catch of the breath, a beat and lifting of the heart, near to, or indeed accompanied by, tears, as keen as that given by any form of literary art, and having a peculiar quality. Okay. 
What do you notice there? Just I would love to see your reactions here. Thinking about Deus Ex Machina as I was describing it, as an, and as Aristotle was critiquing it there in that first passage, um, what do you notice about his description here of eucatastrophe, of this sudden joyous turn, this happy ending? And again, not just a happy ending in the sense of one event follows another and then we, you know, and then we say they all, and then they lived happily ever after. Um, that sudden joyous turn, that unexpected turn of events. The, I, I, I still think the most sort of classic example of the eucatastrophic moment in Tolkien's works is the eagles are coming in The Hobbit. Um, I don't think there's any sort of purer moment of eucatastrophe uh, in any of Tolkien's writings, at least that I can think of, um, than that moment when Bilbo is just, you know, is is looking around and seeing the defeat of, you know, the elves and the men and the dwarves and the goblins swarming up over the mountain behind them and saying, you know, I'd always heard that defeat could be glorious, but it seems, it seems it's very uncomfortable. Um, and, uh, and then to look up into the west, uh, you know, where the sun is reaching through, the, the, the setting sun is reaching through the clouds, just as it did when the secret door is revealed, and he can see the eagles coming and cries out, the eagles are coming, the eagles are coming. There's a wonderful letter where Tolkien comments on this, where he says, you know, he goes back and he's reading the end of The Hobbit again after several years, uh, and uh, find that, found that that moment when he reread it, um, uh, it gave him that eucatastrophic reaction that he's describing there in that second paragraph. That it, uh, it, uh, it, it, it. He found that it had it even when he encountered it uh, in his own book. Um, what do you notice here? What's the difference? Because you know, one has to admit when talking about this, when when you know, when when people are accusing Tolkien of using deus ex machina to bring about happy resolutions of his stories um it it, it seems a plausible a plausible accusation i don't think it's true um my response to that ultimately is that i think that that criticism of tolkien is a short-sighted one i think it's it does not reflect much careful reading of what's actually happening in Tolkien's stories, and sometimes does not reflect careful thought about what the deus ex machina actually is. Um, Sometimes I almost get the feeling um, when I hear people complaining about deus ex machina that almost any turn of events, any unexpected turn of events of any kind, even by the characters in the story or whatever, uh, that is like a sudden, you know, a character makes a choice to do a certain thing and, and, and resolves things in a certain way, that basically anything that leads to a happy ending I, sometimes seems like people call it a deus ex machina, um, uh, which doesn't, uh, which doesn't, is, I don't think even appropriate. Um, Noam Weiss has a great observation. He says, I think that not expecting or not seeing something isn't the same as the probability of the thing. Good. Something being unexpected, a turn, a joyous turn being sudden, does not necessarily make it in the same way that, you know, Aristotle and others, you know, in a many, it wasn't just Aristotle who complained about this. Um, the thing that people were objecting to about that that tendency of Greek drama was the fact that it was external, that some... You know, it's it's not even that a god came in and settled stuff. 
had that been part of the story all along, right? But when this just seems to come out of nowhere and to do a kind of violence to the story itself, um, to abrogate the choices of the characters and just cut across all of that and, uh, uh, and force this particular ending, which neither the characters nor the plot really seem to be going towards, that's the essence of the, of the, the sort of the problem of Deus Ex Machina. Um, and so I agree with Noam that it's not about, that there is a difference between saying that an event is sort of improbable, external, imposed, uh, artificially imposed in the same way, um, and saying that it's not expected. Um, Don Standing has a great way to say it. Deus Ex Machina solves a dramatically unsolvable problem. Eucatastrophe is a logical extension of the trajectory of the narrative. Yes, it may be sudden, it may be unexpected, but it is logical. It has, and you know, Don, that's what I would ultimately point to. But it's a hard argument to make with somebody who doesn't know the text really well. Um, there's, because it's a really complicated argument to make under any circumstances. A good eucatastrophe has a fitness to it. Um, it is not a sort of playing this uh, this sort of sudden trump card. Um, it's not like um, uh, breaking the rules in order to you know it's breaking the rules of the of the sort of the, the secondary world that you've created in order to um, contrive the ending that you want. Um, it's part of that world. Part of that world, in a deep sense, it fits, it works, it makes sense. And that's one of the things that I think that we can see Tolkien pointing to here. Um, this joy, which is one of the things fairy stories can produce supremely well, is not essentially escapist nor fugitive. Now here, of course, he's referring back, he'd just been talking about escapism a little bit before. Um, and uh, sort of objecting to the the argument, you know, the accusation of escapism that people are always leveling at fairy stories and at fantasy. Um, so there, he's 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 using those words in, in in a particular way, alluding back to his previous argument there. Um, but uh, um, but again, I think uh, look at that um, again in that second paragraph. Um, it is the mark of a good fairy story that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventures, it can give to the child or man that hears it when the turn comes, a catch of the breath, a beat and lifting of the heart, near to or indeed accompanied by tears, as keen as that given by any form of literary art and having a peculiar quality. Notice what he's describing here is obviously, in his mind, not a deviation, not a not a failure of artistry, as ultimately that seems to be the, fundamentally the accusation that's being made when people complain of a deus ex machina, that basically the artist has painted himself into a corner and can only escape by some kind of hardly artificial and contrived intervention. Um, and Tolkien is clearly arguing that a eucatastrophe is fundamentally different from that, that it is not only a, a, an organic part of the work of art itself, but it is the the the, the glory, the capstone of that, um, which it might be sudden, it might be might come from an unexpected quarter, but it fits and it works and it feels not only feels right, um, 
but resolves resolves everything together in a sense um yeah um yeah good um yeah, Don is going on to, to, to clarify again. Deus Ex Machina is a characteristic of bad writing, generally agreed by people, whereas Eucatastrophe is a characteristic of depth and planning. It can only work if the subcreation is internally consistent. Um, yes, yes. Uh, Carolyn, that's an interesting way to think about it. Carolyn says... Um, uh, I've read some authors' interviews where they speak of the characters having a life of their own and choosing their own paths. Does Deus Ex Machina deny the true cho choices of the characters? In a sense, yeah, Carolyn. I mean, I think that that's one of the things that we that you can sometimes see uh, in that kind of a, in that kind of a thing where you just sort of that they don't let things go to uh, go to its end. Now, again, you'd say the same thing, right? Well, there's Frodo and Sam. That they they should die at Mount Doom, right? That was we've been leading up to that. Remember Sam's resolution? Um, you know, we did a whole class looking at Sam with his hope and his despair, and as the certainty of his death, his death and Frodo's, um, you know, came clearer and clearer to him, and he knew there was no way that they could escape. And then they escape, and he wakes up on the field of Cormowan, and there's Gandalf alive, and they're alive, and everything, and there's Merry and Pippin, and, and Aragorn on a throne, and and everything is okay, right? Deus Ex Machina, that wasn't where things were headed. That wasn't where things were going. Well, we'll come back to that scene on the field of Cormelon. Um, but again I, I, again, I think that what we can see happening there, again, when you contrast it with those, you know, like the, the Greek plays <clears throat> with the Deus Ex Machina, the difference is that that is something, it, it, it does fit. It is right. Um, it is a sudden joyous turn, <clears throat> but it's not uh, it's not an abrogation um, of what came before. Um, yeah, Tom's still thinking of the Iliad there. Tom, I was thinking of the you know that choice when Agamemnon in book two tests the uh, the the troops and sees sees if they want to go home and they all decide they're going to turn and go home uh, until Odysseus shames them into going back. Um, I was thinking about that, Tom, but I don't see how that's a Deus Ex Machina. Uh, first of all, it's not near the ending. There's no god involved, and or at least any more than there are gods involved at other points uh, in the story, and um, it. There's just doesn't seem to me any of the characteristics of a Deus Ex Machina in that, um, and of course the only other reference to sailing home is in Achilles' oft-repeated and indeed planned uh, departure uh, before, of course, he changes his mind um, in Book Sixteen. So I, I, I don't, uh, I don't think you know. Alyssa was suggesting before uh, that uh, it's possible that. Um, what the story that uh, Aristotle's referring to there is an Iliad that's different from what we have. It's possible. Uh, you know, goodness knows the textual history of the Iliad is not perfect, and of course it was an oral, uh, it was an oral uh, text to begin with anyhow. But anyway, so yeah, Tom, I was, I, that was a scene I was thinking of too in book two, but it didn't, uh, didn't strike me as, um, um, it didn't strike me as, as, uh, as anything uh, 
powerfully relevant. Robert asks, uh, Robert Brown asks, which is Gandalf's return? Uh, Robert, I assume you mean, is it Eucatastrophe, is it Eucatastrophe, or is it Deus, Deus Ex Machina? Um, again, certainly, um, the thing is, Gandalf's return seems like Deus Ex Machina to Sam, <laughs> right? It seems to come from. I mean, that's why he's like, "Is everything sad going to come untrue? You know, are we just going to? Um, are we going to deny? I mean, again, looking here at, at uh, uh, Tolkien's definition, it does not deny the existence of discatastrophe, of sorrow and failure. And Sam, in that moment, asks, "Wait, but does is this is that in fact what's happening? Are we in fact denying the existence of discatastrophe?" Um, Let's actually go ahead and look at that, because that's the next passage I wanted to look at anyway. So we'll continue the discussion as we transition in here. And a voice spoke softly behind him. He's just asked, where am I? In the land of Athelion, and in the keeping of the king, and he awaits you. With that Gandalf stood before him, robed in white, his beard now gleaming like pure snow in the twinkling of, leafy, of the leafy sunlight. Well, Master Samwise, how do you feel? he said. But Sam lay back and stared with open mouth, and for a moment between bewilderment and great joy he could not answer. At last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf, and then he laughed, and the sound was like music, or like water in a parched land, and as he listened the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known, but he himself burst into tears. Then, as a sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring, and the sun will shine out the clearer, his tears ceased, and his laughter welled up, and laughing, he sprang from his bed. Okay, so... Again, this is, this is a moment. You know, is everything sad going to come untrue? This is kind of a question which, in a sense, can kind of linger over the second half of book six, right? Because, again, it would seem that... Okay, that seems to be that seems to be more like Deus Ex Machina. Right? We're just gonna we're just gonna we're just gonna reverse everything. It's gonna turn out everything is fine, right? Um, Sam's even gonna get his pony back. Um, everything sad is gonna turn untrue. Again, that seems like a denial of discatastrophe, right? A denial of of sorrow and failure. Um, and certainly, if you had somebody who was inclined uh, to say that. The ending of the fel- of the of the Lord of the Rings, the ending of the Return of the King, is kind of contrived, right? That we get this long, extended series of happy endings with everything getting you know closure after closure after closure, and everything turning out well. Um, there's a if if you had somebody who's making that argument, I'm not saying I agree with that argument, but if you had uh, uh, if you had somebody making that argument. They could find support for it, couldn't they? Right? Let's 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 look around for just a little bit. Um, Bilbo talks about this explicitly with Frodo. Remember, this is in the Fellowship of the Ring, uh, right before they leave Rivendell, um, and you know while they're still after the council and before they depart. And uh, um, Frodo is saying, "How long do you think I shall have here?" Said Frodo to Bilbo when Gandalf had gone. "Oh, I don't know. I can't count days in Rivendell," said Bilbo. "But quite long, I should think." 
We can have many a good talk. What about helping me with my book and making a start on the next? Have you thought of an ending? I love that question. Have you thought of an ending? This to Bilbo is the way to start, right? Obviously, we've got to start on the next book. So step one, think of an ending, right? That, that seems to be his rationale here. Yes, several, and all are dark and unpleasant, said Frodo. Oh, that won't do, said Bilbo. Books ought to have good endings. How would this do? And they all settled down and lived together happily ever after. It will do well if it ever comes to that, said Frodo. So Bilbo says, step one to writing a story is think of an ending. And he has got a suggestion. The kind of ending that he's got in mind is, and they all settled down and lived together happily ever after. So the question is, again, the, the same question in a different way, is that, the kind, is that what happens here in The Lord of the Rings? Um, is The Lord of the Rings one of those books like Bilbo likes, right? Um, that, that have good endings, um, you know, that, which sort of the pre-contrived and they all settled down and lived happily together, uh, uh, you know, they all lived together happily ever after. Um, no matter what happens in between, we're going we're gonna, to, you know, shoehorn things till we get to that happy ending. Um, uh, and again, if somebody were going to be making that argument, they'd find evidence, right? For instance, Minas Tirith. In his time, the city was made more fair than it had ever been, even in the days of its first glory, and it was filled with trees and with fountains, and its gates were wrought of mithril and steel, and its streets were paved with white marble, and the folk of the mountain labored in it, and the folk of the wood rejoiced to come there, and all was healed and made good, and the houses were filled with men and women and the laughter of children, and no window was blind, nor any courtyard empty, and after the ending of the third age of the world into the new age, it preserved the memory and the glory of the years that were gone. Uh, notice, by the way, this uh, other excellent example of parataxis, how all of those things are, 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 are put in there together, um, uh, joined by and. You'll notice the one place where we get into uh, um, a subordinate clause there. Um, uh, well, it's not even a supporting clause, it's just a really long phrase, but after the ending of the Third Age of the New World into the New Age, it preserved the memory and the glory of the years that were gone. It's the only part of that that isn't perfectly paratactical. Um, or paratactic, I guess, would be the adjectival form. Um, uh, but anyway, um, happily ever after, Right? Um, that sounds like a book with a good ending, right? Doesn't that kind of sound like, and they all live together, and they all together, you know, and they all live together happily ever after, and just, it's, uh, you know, they all settle down and live together happily ever after. Doesn't that kind of sound like that, right? I mean, this is, uh, you know, and it, 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 it was more fair than it had been even in the days of its first glory, so, and we saw the suffering of Minas Tirith, we saw that, you know, Minas Tirith near despair, uh, you, know, uh, on f you know, in flames with the enemy breaking down the gate, it's okay. Now everything is even better, and the gates are restored even better, and, the, you know, the, the, the dwarves are laboring there, and the elves like it, and everything is all was healed and made good. We've got the laughter of children. No window was blind, nor any courtyard. We've even fixed all the architectural flaws, right? Everything is, everything is perfect. Everything is perfect. Or again, this is my favorite one. 
Altogether, 1420 in the Shire was a marvelous year. Not only was there wonderful sunshine and delicious rain in due times and perfect measure, but there seemed something more, an air of richness and growth and a gleam of a beauty beyond that of mortal summers that flicker and pass upon this Middle-earth. All the children born or begotten in that year, and there were many, were fair to see and strong, and most of them had a rich golden hair that had before been rare among hobbits. The fruit was so plentiful that young hobbits very nearly bathed in strawberries and cream, and later they sat on the lawns under the plum trees and ate until they made piles of stones like small pyramids or the heaped skulls of a conqueror, and then they moved on. And no one was ill, and everyone was pleased, except those who had to, who had to mow the grass. That last sentence. And no one was ill, and everyone was pleased. Right? That's happily ever after, right? Boy, oh boy, is that happily ever after. Um, now, um, Arthur is pointing out how grisly is the image of the heaped skulls of a conqueror, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but of course, there's 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 irony there, right? I mean, I mean, it's uh, the. I think even the grimness of that image really just sort of offsets uh, the the serves as serves to me anyway as a kind of uh, emphasis on the peace and quietude of the thing you know that you're you know that there's there's no question of, of of actual conquering anymore now you know the most the greatest violence that's done uh, is to plums <laughs> right by children um, uh, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Kay, I, I, I suspect that <laughs> Kay is asking: Is the discontent of the grass of the grass cutters due to the fact that the grass is growing so fast, or because there are all those all those darn plum pits everywhere, <clears throat> mucking up the lawnmowers? Um, I, I, I suspect the former, Kay. But I certainly would not like to come across a big pile of plum seeds when I was mowing. I have to say. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Susan Cormier points out that it's interesting that the that both of these two passages that I was just reading mention children. Um, you know, talking about the laughter and the play of children. There's so little reference to them in the rest of the book. It's true. Um, well, see, some of you are pointing to um, some of you are pointing to the way in which this is sort of a setup um, for the ending for Frodo's departure. Um, and I agree. And of course, that's one of the things, if I were, um, uh, if I were, uh, you know, addressing this again, if, if, if I have my hypothetical person who is making this argument that the ending of the Lord of the Rings is simplistic, you know, is, is you know, it's just being, we're, we're, we, he is in fact just creating this completely unreal fantasy world um, and trying to make all of the, bad things go away, uh, and it's not very convincing, and it just feels like a deus ex machina, um, you know, that everything, all, the, you know, that basically just every, everything sad is just coming untrue, right? Like Sam indicated there um, in that previous passage. We do have, certainly, some passages to put against those, right? Because it's not all, you know, we, we do get these 
moment, you know, both of these two moments that I was just describing, the description of sort of the future career of Minas Tirith, um, the description of the conditions in the Shire in 1420, and no one was ill, and everyone was pleased, and all the children were beautiful and happy and, uh, and all that. That's not the whole story, right? That's not all that we get. Interspersed in the midst of that is lingering pain by Frodo, especially, um, and Frodo is really sort of our our touchstone for that, but also sorrow. Not all closures are happy closures, right? You know, don't forget, for instance, Treebeard and the Ants. Now I thank you once more, said Aragorn, and I bid you farewell. May your forest grow again in peace. When this valley is filled, there is room and despair west of the mountains, where once you walked long ago. Treebeard's face became sad. Forests may grow, he said, woods may spread, but not ents. There are no entings. Yet maybe there is now more hope in your search, said Aragorn. Lands will lie open to you eastward that have long been closed. But Treebeard shook his head and said, It is far to go, and there are too many men there in these days. Uh, for me, that last line is the saddest part of that whole scene. Saying, you know, woods may spread but not ends, there are no endings, that's really sad. But when Aragorn points out, hey, you could, you know, maybe there's more hope in your search. And he says, no, 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 there isn't. Right? And in implying in that last line that they may not even go to look because there's no more hope in their search. Um, it's really sad still. Right? And that's only, you know, so only one element here. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so what do you say? How do we talk about... Um, how do we talk about the ending of The Lord of the Rings? Um, is it... you catastrophe instead of Deus Ex Machina, um, and, you know, you know, can we make that distinction, thinking along the terms that Tolkien was, 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 was laying down, um, and his description of catastrophe? Um, you know, can we get there? And I think that we can. Um, it's certainly... The first thing I would say is that there is, again, to me, no sense of that kind of external... Um, that external thing. Even the eagles. And the eagles, much more in The Lord of the Rings than in The Hobbit, come out of nowhere. The, the eagles don't come out of nowhere uh, in The Hobbit. We know where they come from. And in fact, their arrival at the battle is just the last and most dramatic of the arrivals. Everybody's been converging on the Lonely Mountain, right? They're, the eagles are just the last ones to arrive. Uh, you know, Bjorn has come, uh, you know, we don't hear about it until after, but Bjorn ha has come, you know, so we got first the elves and the, and the, and the, and the, the men of Lake Town come, uh, and then, you know, the, the birds are gathering back, we're told, and, uh, you know, they're spreading the, they're spreading the word, Bjorn shows up, the goblins show up, and the eagles show up, almost, you know, everybody that we've seen, the eagles and the wargs, um, that, or, no, the goblins and the wargs that we met before, the eagles, Bjorn, pretty much everybody that we've met before um, has shown up at the Battle of Five Armies. So that the eagles show up is no um, sort of strange thing. 
um, when they show up in The Return of the King, it's a little bit different, right? They are a little bit more from nowhere. No, not absolutely from nowhere. We have been seeing them, right? Um, Guai here has been helping Gandalf all the way along. Um, so the fact that he shows up to help Gandalf again is not completely out of nowhere. Again, certainly not in the Greek tragedy um, way of 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 coming, uh, having a totally hitherto unconnected character, you know, divine character emerge out of nowhere. Um, but in a sense, again, especially with the way that the eagles are connected with Gandalf, um, because they don't do anything but you probably know me well enough to know when I am pausing like that it's because I'm evaluating the sentence I'm in the middle of saying I don't think correct me if I'm wrong I don't think we see any activity by the eagles in the Lord of the Rings Lord of the Rings now, not in the Hobbit in the Lord of the Rings which is unconnected with Gandalf the eagle uh, carries him away from Orthanc the eagle carries him off of Zirak Zigil. The eagle is uh, sort of looking, spying out the land and bringing him tidings before he meets with uh, Aragorn and Legos and Gimli. Um, and then the eagles come and bear, not not only go to bear Frodo and Sam, but to bear Gandalf again. I will bear you, you know, I would bear you whither you will, even if they were uh, made of stone, um, even if he were made of stone. Um, so again, in a sense, it's, uh, it's, oh, you're right, Luke, I had forgotten, it's because Gandalf's the only one who can send butterfly messages, yeah, how did I, how did I, how did I forget? Um, okay, you're, okay, yes, their arrival at Pony, we have their arrival with the announcement of the news, but even there, you know, they've come, they've come from Gandalf, it's, it's not like they're doing something totally different. Yeah, you're right, Gandalf's not actually present there, um, or overtly directing them. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I'm not sure, uh, I'm not sure I find that, um, uh, I'm, I'm not sure I find that a, 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 a totally different, uh, uh, you know, appearance by them. Um, but anyway, because uh, again, I got the presumably they've come from him there. Um, so yeah, so to me, in the Lord of the Rings, the eagle's question, it's its an extension of Gan... Not an, well, again, extension, that's not quite the right way to say it, but um, they're sort of part of the Gandalf question. Um, and, you know, in a sense, this comes back to the question, uh, Robert, which I never fully answered, about Gandalf. Is Gandalf's resurrection, is Gandalf's return from death uh, in the first place? Deus Ex Machina, or You Catastrophe. Um, and I think with the... That one, I, that one feels pretty simple. Largely because of the timing of it. Um, because it is certainly, again, the signature element of Deus Ex Machina is a for it to be a contrivance which comes in usually at the last minute um, to get the characters out of a problem that, you know, just can't be solved by any, you know, naturalistic means within the reach of the characters themselves. Um, that the natural course of events of the plot 
um, is just not going in the right. It's not going to go in the direction that the that the author wants it to go in, and so things just have to be changed. Um, Gandalf's death and return don't fit that description. There are several ways in which Gandalf's death and return do not at all, to me, fit that description. Um, and again, one is simply the timing of it. The fact that he dies in the middle of um, in the middle of book of of you know of of the you know he di- dies in the middle of the first volume, dies in book two uh, out of six, returns in book three, um, and you know we have. Um, you know, lots of space on either side. It's very it 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 fits very naturally. Um, you know, Gandalf's return is very sudden and unexpected. Again, to just as to Sam and on the field of Cormallan, um, the uh, the return of Gandalf when Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli meet him, you know, feels to them uh, like this sort of sudden stroke that they can't understand. Um, but again, given Gandalf, given the 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 thing with Gandalf in the first place, remember you know we were way back in our first class on the Return of the King, we we're looking at Pippin in Minas Tirith. You know, remember that moment when he looks at Gandalf and says, "Who is Gandalf anyway? Right? Where did he come from?" Um, that's a question that we are prompted increasingly to ask as we move on, even as we move up towards the death of Gandalf in Moria, we're already asking that question, right? Remember when that conversation between, you know, among the hobbits, before they're attacked by the wargs on the hilltop, um, before they get to Moria, and Sam is saying, whatever is in store for old Gandalf, I'll wager it isn't a wolf's belly. Um, and again, there's this implication, at least I take, the implication there that, you know, he's sort of recognizing, you know, um, that's, 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 that's not going to happen, right? Gandalf's not normal in that way. He's not going to die a death like that. That's just not going to happen. No wolf could ever possibly overcome him. As Gandalf says more explicitly later on, you know, you have no, you know, indeed, you have no weapons here that can harm me, right? You know, he says that, of course, after his return. But, um, uh, but again, it's that question of, yeah, what is Gandalf? What is he capable of? Who is he? What is he? That question begins to emerge. We don't ask it so much at the beginning, um, of the story. We ask it increasingly and even more later on. And that seems to me uh, to do a lot to... to and that's why I think the fact that he returns, that he is sent back as he describes it, we don't know how or why he came in the first place. Why should we object and say that it seems um, you know, arbitrary or contrived that he returns when we don't know how he got there in the first place? Um, had uh, you know, had one of the, you know, had, like, uh, uh, you know, Mary taken a sword through his head in the fight in Moria and then afterwards popped up again, um, you know, that would have seemed contrived, right? But with, you know, Gandalf's fall and then his return, um, not so much. Again, because of who he is and what he is and how we've been prompted to look at him. And for that same reason... um, the fact that he is connected to the eagles in the way that he is in the Lord of the Rings seems right, seems fitting. Um, he, you know, it's clear that he has been sent, that he is something like a messenger, not a messenger in the sense of, you know, having a message that he has to 
give to somebody else, and that's his job. But he's an emissary. He's been sent um, by some higher power, which is not made clear um, in his description of his uh, of his return uh, to to Legos and Gimli and Aragorn. Um, and so again, that he would be associated with the eagles, especially knowing uh, the eagles' associations um, with Manway through through the his through history. Um, these things seem perfectly fitting, um, and you know, it, it reminds me of the question, the the question actually asked quite a bit more often, at least to me, uh, than. You know, doesn't the ending seem like a Deus Ex Machina, or is Gandalf's return a Deus Ex Machina? What's more often asked is, you know, the famous question: Why didn't they, the Eagles, just carry them to Mount Doom and throw the ring in from there? Um, and the answer to that, my answer to that, is just very simply because that would be a really bad story. Um, could that happen in theory? Yeah, sure. Um, but, hey, you don't even need the eagles, right? Um, y- could the Valar have snapped their fingers and unmade the ring? P- possibly. Could Iluvatar have done that? Yeah, probably. Could Iluvatar have created such a world where, like, evil never happened in the first place? Yeah. But none of those things <laughs> happened. Um, and one of the reasons those things didn't happen is that what's the story? There would then be no story. Um, and again, it's it's all involved, and it's not just a question of, like, well, the story must somehow be contrived. No, history must somehow be contrived. The world must somehow be, and it must somehow be as we know it. So we see Gandalf not acting. You'll notice how little Gandalf does in The Return of the King. That is, how few things he actually accomplishes. He saves Faramir from Denethor. Um, okay. What else does he do? Go with the eagles to save Frodo and Sam? I mean, gives good advice. He laughs, says Kay. Yes, yes he does. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. He, uh, um, but he he does almost nothing. Gnome says he faces the Black Rider. Yes, but then the Black Rider goes away. He 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 he, he faces him, but he doesn't fight him. They they don't have their confrontation, which it looks like, um, uh, which it looks like they're they're about to have, but then it doesn't it doesn't happen. Yeah, he doesn't. Directly at y- Yana points out he gives hope to the uh, to the Gondorian soldiers in their despair. It's true he does help to counteract uh, what the Witch King and the Nazgul are doing to the people uh, to, the, to to the soldiers in Minas Tirith. Um, he does help to bring hope to them. Um, yes, yes, he does. Um, but I was particularly struck in this reading through to his remaining. Um, to his remaining at the Houses of Healing, right? You know, he what Pippin is there saying, come on, they're going to burn Faramir to death. And Gandalf first says, no, I've got to go, right? You know, the, 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 the Lord of the Nazgul is abroad and he may yet do much evil. Gandalf seems to be under the impression at that moment 
my job is to fight that guy. Like I, that's why you know he's I'm the you know white rider. He's the black rider. This is clearly what things have been going up towards. You know, against some I have not been measured. You know, okay, this is this is it, right? And it almost just happened, and then and then it suddenly didn't happen. Um, and then he says, you know, okay, Pippin, if I go with you, then more will die too. I fear, but he's like, well, you know, I've got to do it. So we see, you know, we didn't talk about that. You know, the Gandalf's choice. Thinking back to the Two Towers class and all the, the you know, ways we were looking at the choices that people make, um, Gandalf makes a very similar choice, though in, in, in a hurry. Um, very similar choice to what Aragorn makes um, uh, when he chooses to go after Merry and Pippin. You know, that Faramir is about to be burned to death and nobody can do anything about that except Gandalf. Whereas it would seem more prudent to be like, you know, um, I'm sorry, Faramir, love you, but i got to go out to the battle. Um, it was nice to know you, Faramir, but, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. That would seem to be the pragmatic approach to say, I've got the most good I can do is to go and try to, 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 to be there um, to protect the Rohirrim from, uh, from the Witch King when he tries to come down on them, which indeed he will. Um, but Gandalf doesn't do that. But not only that, when he's done, when he's done, you know, polishing up that whole Faramir issue, right? So when he comes back to the Houses of Healing with Faramir, remember there's that moment when he goes up to the battlements and he looks out, and he can see with the sight that is given to him all the things that have happened, right? So he he's, he, 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 he knows about, you know, Theoden and Eowyn and, and all these things, and he... Um, but there's still a heck of a lot of fighting left, there's still much to do on the battlefield. Things are not yet resolved. But he stays. He doesn't go out. He still doesn't go out. Because um, he says, you know, more more yet going to be more yet going to be brought in. Um, but, uh, um, but, yeah, yeah. Um, he, so again, but he, he, in the end, he doesn't do anything. Um, Again, it doesn't appear to be doing anything. And he stays in. Similarly, you know, he, he speaks up in the last debate, right? Gives good advice. Um, but <laughs> Tom says, you know, he sees uh, Legolas take out the Mumak, uh, you know, so he knows he's not really needed. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think you're right, Tom. It's when the armies of the dead show up at the Battle of Pelennor Field that he realizes, that, you know, they've got it under control. Um, I'm kidding. Course, just kidding. Uh, anyway, um, and then again at the battle at the Black Gate. Again, he's what he does is to you know to shout out for them all to stand. Uh, um, yeah, it's just I think very striking that Gandalf, who is you know the captain, the mover of all these things, he does not act as the champion, um, though you'd think he could, right? Um, he almost never does anything directly. We almost never see him intervening to actually bring about an event. Um, that's not his role. That's not what he's doing. That's not how the story is supposed to go. Um, but, uh, anyway, um, it's interesting, uh, Kay said, he, like Faramir, willingly uh, grows lesser to make way for the king. In a sense, he certainly does that later on. We even see him doing the same thing in a small way um, 
in the scouring of the Shire, right? Stepping aside and saying, no, no, you guys, you guys take care of it, right? Um, this isn't this isn't my job anymore. He's not going to ride into the Shire. He could, obviously, ride into the shower Shire and take care of everything. Um, uh, yeah, I don't want to tragically combine scour and Shire. Um, uh, he could ride into the Shire and just take care of everything, and he would know what's going on, and he could rout out Saruman and set everything to rights in a heartbeat. Um, but then where would everybody be, right? How does that story end? Um, what, what are the results there? Gandalf has got a different job. He's bringing about something different um, and thinking very differently about these things. That's not, that's not what Gandalf is there to do. Um... Anyway, sorry, I'm semi-rambling now. Um, but again, I think that it's important in thinking about Eucatastrophe, and especially the Eucatastrophe uh, that Gandalf and the Eagles take, both the one that they take part in uh, in The Return of the King and the one that they don't take part in in The Return of the King. Um, that's not their job. That's not the way that things are supposed to go. In a sense, um, you could say that the opposition to deus ex machina goes as deep as it is possible to go in Tolkien's world. It goes all the way down to the very fabric of creation and back to the music of the Ainur at the beginning. There was, of course, the opportunity for deus ex machina at the very beginning. It wasn't necessarily a machine involved, but there was a deus right there at the Rebellion of Melkor. Uh, and the way that Iluvatar responds, or one could say doesn't respond, to Melkor. Um, at the moment of his rebellion, right before his rebellion, Iluvatar could have just snuffed him, right? Forget about it. Let's put, push the mute button on Melkor uh, right at that critical moment. Presumably, Iluvatar could have done that. I don't see any reason to think that he couldn't, but he doesn't. That's not how he acts. That's not the kind of world that he has created. Um, he has delegated what appears to be some actual authority. He has granted uh, some. He he has granted some real being, um, in foreshadowing of the of the capital B being Ea that he is going to give to their song and to their music afterwards. He's granted some real being to the choices that they make, even when they make choices that he. Uh, that are not the choices that he would want, that are not in harmony with his will. His will, as he explains, will still be done anyway, despite and through those other choices. And yet, he's not going to simply abrogate their choices. He's not going to prevent Melkor from becoming Melkor. He's not going to prevent Melkor from creating discord. But things are going to work out how he wants them to work out, but he's not going to stop that from happening. So again, that kind of that 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 uh, refusal, that rejection of Deus Ex Machina, um, is really really deep in Tolkien's world. Um, so, so anyway, so I so I think that's why you know to me it's kind of funny that you've got a bunch of people saying, oh, the eagles are so eucatastrophic, and then you've got even more people saying, hey, why didn't the eagles just take the ring? Because they're not deus ex machina. That's why. <laughs> um, but anyway. Um, yeah, good, let's see. Um, 
you know, Yana is pointing to um, pointing to the 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 chessboard image that Gandalf himself uses um, with Pippin back in the first chapter. You know, the board is set. Um, you know, and that pawns may uh, you know see as as much action as any. Um, and so, you know, Yana's sort of suggesting what we get here is a chess match between, you know, uh, Gandalf and Sauron, them being the two movers of the pieces, Sauron of the black pieces and Gandalf of the white. Um, and there are ways in which this works. Remember when we were reading that passage last time, um, uh, and I was focusing on the stylistics of the passage to some extent, um, but we were reading the passage about, you know, Sauron and, you know, shaking his mind free from all of his policies and... Um, uh, and, and everything else, and all of his his you know slaves and captains and everything, looking at the way that he has dispersed himself among that network, um, and what we were noticing was Sauron's absence from the you know and for any from any direct action, and Sauron even Sauron's uh, you know absence or relative absence grammatically uh, from those from from those sentences. Um, but, so when we think about them compared with Gandalf and how Gandalf is doing things, we can see there are some similarities, right? Um, in that both of them choose not to be the champion, not to be marching at the front of the army, um, but to be moving the pieces, to be inspiring and directing others. But of course we can see there's a very great difference between how Sauron... Uh, directs others, directs and inspires others, um, and how Gandalf does. Um, yeah, but um, yeah, yeah. And of course, Tom, exactly as you say, Gandalf never has that kind of control. No, no, he's not. I mean, to some extent, I think that Gandalf. I mean, if you, I think if you asked Gandalf, he would, um, um, you know, say that he was not the player. Right, he he is not the one who's moving all these pieces. Um, he even implies as much when you know he says again, extending his own metaphor. You know, one piece that I would very much like to know uh, in the whereabouts of is Faramir. It's when he's saying, "Where's Faramir? Where's Faramir?" The fact that he is expressing ignorance of, you know, how the pieces are moving and you know what's going on, um, what's going on on you know the different parts of the board, sort of shows that he. Uh, um, you know, he certainly does not think of himself as the mastermind player. But, Rachel, exactly, he does uh, have the ability to affect, to affect men's minds and hearts, to inspire and stir and direct and counsel. Um, so I, 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 I agree, Rachel. I think that there are certainly ways in which, although he is certainly not just the obverse of Sauron, he is not simply the opposite, his opposite number, um, he is not the parallel to Sauron in that way. Um, yet we can certainly see uh, some uh, some similarities there. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, good. Um, yeah, good. Yana was just uh, suggesting the same thing. Um, yeah, good. Well, Let's get back to our my theoretical question of our theoretical objector who says the ending of the Return of the King is this like super contrived series of 
you know, happily ever afters and uh, happy closures. Um, okay, okay, so the answer's still sad. I'll give you that the answer's still sad. But still, I mean, honestly, um, the majority of the book is really all coming towards this really unrealistic, saccharine denial of discatastrophe. Um, everything sad just comes untrue, um, and it just keeps coming and coming and coming. Um, how would we answer such a person? What is the answer to such an argument? Um, my answer is the field of Cormallon. And all the host laughed and wept, and in the midst of their merriment and tears the clear voice of the minstrel rose like silver and gold, and all men were hushed. And he sang to them, now in the elven tongue, now in the speech of the West, until their hearts, wounded with sweet words, overflowed, and their joy was like swords, and they passed in thought <clears throat> and they passed in thought out to regions where pain and delight flow together, and tears are the very wine of blessedness. I've often thought that some day, when I am much wiser than I am now, I would like to try to write something about loss and sorrow in Tolkien's world. And I don't think I'm anything like wise enough to write such a thing now. Um, and the title of that work would be The Very Wine of Blessedness. I love that phrase. Um, Regions where pain and delight flow together and tears are the very wine of blessedness. Um... Diego says, sad things did not become untrue. They were, in the end, they were just good to have been. Um, Diego quoting um, one of my favorite lines in the Silmarillion. Um, uh, that, you know, thus shall evil be good to have been, says Manway. And of course, Mandos immediately pops up, as he so often does, and says, and yet remain evil. Right. Let's not forget that. Um, yes, yes, Diego, I agree. Um, what we see here is certainly not the leaving behind, just everything sad and becoming untrue. Um, even Sam himself shows, in that moment, um, shows that, you know, he, he, he knows, he can see, he can feel that that's not the case. The fact that he is weeping and laughing at the same time um, shows that he himself is sort of seeing both of these, you know, that he is sort of emotionally in that place where pain and delight flow together. Um, this place where the minstrel is taking them all uh, through his song. Um, this is... This is, to me, the pattern of the end of the Lord of the Rings. Um, this moment at the Field of Cormallon is, I feel, the encapsulation of what we get from here on. You know, again, this is chapter four uh, of, of book six, the Field of Cormallon. Um, and we've still got many, many chapters to go, but what we're going to get is this. Pain and delight flowing together. Um, we're getting a glimpse, not just of joy, even of joy beyond the world, but we're getting some of that. 
certainly in that description of the Shire in 1420, that's one of the things that we're getting. It's one of the things we're getting in that Minas Tirith description, right? Um, but that we are... We have to get the delight. We have to get the the happiness of the resolution in order to see, in order to appreciate how it fits with the pain, the delight and the pain together, to understand how tears can be the very wine of blessedness. Um, you know, Gandalf says at the end, not all tears are an evil, right? I shall not say do not weep, for not all tears are an evil. Um, in one sense, um, at least from this place, from those regions that are being described here, no tears are an evil. That the happy ending, far from denying sorrow and failure, transforms it. And it doesn't lose its sorrow. It doesn't lose its sadness. But that sorrow itself becomes powerful, becomes blessedness. I think such an important word there. Um, so much different from happiness or even joy. Um, but as I say, I um, uh, it, both Diego and Arthur are making references to Niena at the same time. Yes, it should make you think of Niena. Um, I again, I, I'm sort of approaching things that that again, that as I say, I feel that I am insufficiently wise uh, to talk about. Um, or to try to explain, certainly. So I won't try to explain them, but just sort of point to them, um, which, of course, is a rather helpless thing to do, as if you don't see what I'm pointing at, I don't know if I can help you any further, at least not yet. Maybe someday, maybe maybe another 40 years, I don't know. But, um, uh, but this is, to me, why I find the reading of the end... Of the, of the Return of the King, either that finds the ending superfluous, or meaningless, or trite, or contrived, or any of those things. Um, I just feel like they're not really reading what's there, because of course throughout, um, even in the very moments when he's describing Minas Tirith and the Shire, um, you know, in their the full glory, and no one was ill, and everyone was pleased, and no window was blind, and all of these things. Um, even in those moments, we are getting, you know, we are either building to or reflecting on the loss and the passing. You know, the 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 glory that has come. The you know the ministry has been returned to glory greater than than it had before, and yet. Before, we're, before we see that, we're told that the glory of the older days are passing, right? Um, if that happens, if Minas Tirith does in fact return to a glory greater than it was before, it's not going to last, right? That won't last. Um, we know that won't last because those things are passing. Um, the elder days are gone. Um, and much of this beauty is being lost 
from the world. Minas Tirith isn't going to last forever. Um, and the Shire, 1420, was a great year. But, you know, then we have Frodo and Frodo's loss. And what seems, and what seems to Sam in, you know, their final discussion about this, um, what feels to Sam like the pointlessness of Frodo's sacrifice that, you know, when he says, I thought you were going to enjoy the Shire for years and years, right? It's like, you saved it, you know, and for Frodo to hear Frodo say, the Shire has been saved, but not for me. Um, didn't you sacrifice enough? Can't the sacrificing be over now? Um, and Frodo says, no, you know, it can't, um, some wounds can't be healed. Um, that that's, yeah, just not, uh, not how it's, um, not how it's going to work. Oh, Diego, uh, makes a wonderful point. Um, thinking about how Faramir describes Eowyn when he sees her in the Houses of Healing, talks about how her sorrow makes, uh, makes her more beautiful still. I agree, Diego. Um, yeah, and I'll come back to that in a second, actually. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And as Carolyn is pointing out, of course, thinking about Frodo's finger, right? That just, you know, his... He can stop the bleeding, but his hand will never again be whole, you know? Um, just as he himself will never, in Middle-earth, be whole. Um, we have the Shire, you know, transforming before our eyes into a kind of... Um, you know, in, into a kind of paradise, more than it was before. Um, you know, Sharky was trying to turn the Shire into a desert, right? Um, and it looked like, you know, it so much had been destroyed and could not be restored, and yet, um, you know, even the party tree has been cut down, but then a Malloran tree is put in its place, right? So, um, you know, you can say, with the gaffer, all's well as ends better, right? Um, again, that looks like the way that the Shire is going, and yet we have uh, um, we have loss, Frodo's loss, but again, it's more than just, and yet it's sad because Frodo is still hurt. There's more to it than that. As Alyssa says, um, you know, uh, thinking of 1420, mortal summers that flicker and pass, even in the happy ending, transitoriness is recognized. Remember that reference to the old gaffer uh, drinking a well-deserved pint of ale and saying, ah, that was proper 1420, that was, right? Uh, but again, notice that even contained in that anecdote is the sense of decline, right? It's yeah, fourteen twenty is awesome, but it's not going to be that way forever. This is not you know, that um, this has not been turned into Neverland, right? Um, it's going to decline. It's not all going to be that way. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. As Tom is pointing out, that Frodo's uh, position at the end is foreseen at the beginning. Um, you know, how he f says that he feels to go to to lose a treasure and not come back. Yeah, he, he, he has a foreboding. Uh, he forebodes. I love using forebode as a verb. Um, I tried to use forebode as a verb in my dissertation, I remember. And my dissertation advisor would not allow me to use forebode as a verb. It's not a verb, he says. And I'm like, but, 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 
<laughs> free Tolkien. It is. It's an awesome verb. It wouldn't let me do it. Um, anyway, uh, as Frodo forebodes, his will not be a there and back again journey like Bilbo's. Um, yes, Tom, he forbade forebode indeed. That's exactly what happened. It was awful. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so again, even, even just to say, oh, see, everything, everything is just made perfect and, and, you know, saccharine, sweet, happy at the end is to, is to, to, to overlook it. Yeah, we get this, this blessing, this really almost like a final blessing, right? This last wave of blessing that comes through. Um, Minas Tirith is blessed by the elves and by the dwarves, but the elves are going to go. Right, they're not going to stick around. The time of the elder, uh, uh, you know, the elder children is past. The Shire, fourteen twenty, is an incredible year. There's not going to be another fourteen twenty though, um, and you know things are going to decline from there. Because again, Goadriel, whose magic has enabled this, you know, through the box that she gave to Sam, she's passing over the sea. She's not, you know, there's not going to be any more of that dirt uh, to be thrown up from the uh, from the fourth farthing stone. So. Um, you know, all of these things are the things that we see. The last point that I would make, and I want to come back to the question that I was asking last time, and that is, why do we get all this? What's the point? What do we learn from the fact that the climax of the story, what appears to be, you know, the end of the adventure, happens in chapter three, happens a third of the way through the last book, and two-thirds of book six, a really big percentage of the entire Lord of the Rings is taken up in, you know, what would be possibly slightingly called denouement. Um, uh, why? What does that show us? What do we learn from that? Well, one thing I would say um, that we learn from this is that is where the emphasis of the story lies, right? That is to say, one obvious conclusion to take from the fact that Tolkien has included all that extra stuff, you know, extra stuff, after the adventure is passed. One obvious thing that we can take from that is that the adventure was not the whole point in the first place, right? If it were really just about the quest of the ring, it might have ended with the quest of the ring. Um, and again, I think of the people who complained about the movies and kept wanting to stand up and leave before it was time to stand up and leave. Um, you know, what I would say is it's because you're missing the point, right? Your focus is on the wrong thing. You're not... The focus of this story is not on what you thought the focus of this story was. Um, yeah, Kay is recalling Tolkien's reference in the On Fairy Stories passage we looked at before, um, saying that, you know, fairy stories don't end. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and Don, you're right, the various conclusions are all moving towards the Grey Havens. Think about the patterns that we see. Think about, think about the stuff that we do get um, post-Mount Doom, right? After Chapter 3, you know, from Chapter 4 onward, and, you know, the last two classes worth of stuff here, what do we get? What do we get? Yes, Yana, the adventure was not properly speaking over. I was, of course, thinking of that same passage from The Hobbit. What do we get? We get the Field of Cormallon. We talked about that some. Look at what we get Faramir and Eowyn. Um, and, you know, Luke, I know you were asking by email, you were talking about that passage, and it's, I alluded to it, but didn't talk about it too much uh, last time when we were talking about Eowyn in more detail. Um, 
why do we get that? Why take so long on that? It seems like a side thing, right? Why, um, why does the story pause to dwell on Faramir and Eowyn? I mean, not that it's not cool, and you know, Faramir and Eowyn are awesome, and it's nice to see, it's nice to see characters that we like be happy. Um, but why do we get it? Well, why do we get it? What does it show us? It you know, it shows it's not just about the resolution of for those two characters, which is significant for them, of course. We had two pretty unhappy characters, right? Faramir, um, you know, Eowyn's, of course, was a sad story, and we, you know, we we looked talked about her and her, you know, her her despair and her desire for death. But of course, Faramir's was a sad story too. Um, you know, <clears throat> his relationship with his brother and his relationship with his father and, um, and you know, now he's dealing with his father's suicide and, oh yeah, let's tell the story about how he tried to burn you to death. Um, it's pretty awful. But, um, so, seeing them both achieve healing is nice. But it's more than just that. It's more than just self-indulgence. That's one way to look at it. Right, and sometimes it almost feels like that—that um, that there's a kind of narrative self-indulgence. Right? Let me go back and tie everything up. Let me go back and and show you the happy endings to all of these different stories that we've seen. Right? You know, even things like Han Bori Khan, right? Who gets you know they 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 they, they get the Jurodin forest, and um, you know no one else is even allowed to go in there. Um, so even they get a, get their own little happy ending, right? Bill the Pony is somebody I forget who it was earlier on was pointing out that not only do we get the re, the reunion with Bill the Pony, but we get Bill the Pony taking vengeance on Bill Fernie, right? <laughs> Bill the Pony ends up by getting a little bit of his own back, right? Uh, very satisfying. Luke, that was you, okay? Um, yeah, exactly. And it, it it can seem almost almost self indulgent, but again, I don't think so. I think if we look at the overall patterns of this, what it does is it shows us um, what this story is really building to. And it wasn't the destruction of the ring. The destruction of the ring, don't get me wrong, very important moment uh, in the resolution of the story. But it's not the resolution of the story. Um, Kay, that's just the direction that I had been thinking. Kay says, the story is not about the warrior and his glory. Um, it's to show the beauty of what the warrior defends, of Arda's loveliness and worthiness. Yes, and that, Kay, is exactly why I think that that conversation between Faramir and Eowyn is so important there. The healing that Eowyn chooses to embrace is also kind of a cue for us as well. It's a glimpse into the kind of healing. Um, hers is like the healing of the rest of the world that we're going to see. Um, you know, that um, the direction that things are going um, are in the direction that... Hey, remember that when I'm talking about directions, I'm thinking back to how Faramir was saying he was kind of talking about the direct. you know the way the arrow was pointing for Gondor, right? You know, that they were getting more and more like the Rohirrim. They now like the sword for its sharpness and the arrow for its swiftness and the warrior for his glory. That, you know, warfare has become a, both a sport and an end for them. Um, you know, that's the, that's the way things were trending in Gondor. Things are going to go backwards now. We see Eowyn go backwards um, uh, to embrace, instead of embracing being a warrior and being a shield maiden, uh, as the only way that any 
glory to speak of is to be achieved any good. It's it's the only real good end that you can achieve is glory in battle, preferably a glorious death. That's that's the, pretty much the 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 top shelf goal. No, instead I I will be a shield maiden no longer. I will be a healer, right? Um, she's gonna be a healer. She and Faramir are gonna go and be gardeners, right? That's that's embracing this you know, this higher mode, this is, that's pointing the arrow in the other direction, right? And we can see um, this happening in Minas Tirith, largely understood. We can see this happening uh, even in the Shire to some extent. Um, so, so again, I think there, there are ways in which we can see these kinds of, these kinds of directions, these kinds of, um, of, of points of emphasis that, again, it's not just about the destruction of the ring. It's certainly not about, um, not only about you know the 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 glory and heroism of uh, of the ring bearers there. Um, yeah, uh, interesting. Luke has a a fascinating point that they reverse the warrior trend but preserve and further the mingling trend. Um, yeah, the fact that Faramir uh, is in a sense marrying down one of the only men who does marry down in Tolkien. Um, uh, literally, though, defenders of Eowyn's character would point out that. Um, he's not really mar- marrying down. And of course, politically, in a sense, yeah, I mean, she's the sister of a king, he's a steward. But anyway, um, still, you see what I mean. Um, Sarah points out one of the other major themes, one of the other things that we see happening, if we're, again, we're, if, if we're asking, where does the emphasis lie at the end of this story? Again, it's it's not at heroic climax. Where Then where is it? Um, Sarah King points out it's at a series of goodbyes, right? It's saying for us many partings. Um, many partings would be another label that could be applied to the entire end of the book, right? Not just that one chapter. Um, yes, yes. Um, it's, uh, that certainly is something that saying goodbye, right? Um, and there's a way in which I think that we as readers are implicated in this. Um, the elder days are gone, and the elves are passing. Minas Tirith is restored to glory, but that glory isn't going to last forever. Um, the glimpse that they are being given, Minas Tirith, for instance, in the restoration of the White Tree, is being given a glimpse and a memory of the elder days, that is that is planted in the middle of the of the city, to live in the hearts and lives of that city and its people, and so the memory of the older days will be preserved, and you know an image of its glory maintained and given to them to carry into the new age. Yes, um, but again, Minas Tirith isn't going to last, right? Um, that. That's good, but it's still only a memory. The elder days themselves are gone. Um, and you have to say goodbye again, Sarah. Many partings, right? Um, at the same time as you remember the elder days, the elder days are also, are gone. Right? We're parting from them. We're saying goodbye. Galadriel and Elrond and Gandalf are going to sail away at the end, and they're not coming back. Um, but of course, we as readers are implicated in this too. We're also parting. 
we're going back and saying goodbye to everywhere that we've been, almost every single place that we've been along the way, right? We even sort of wave at Moria from a distance when we see the mountains, right, as we go by. Um, but, you know, going back to to Minas Tirith and to Edoras and to Isengard and to Rivendell and to and to Bree, you know, we're 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 retracing our steps and saying goodbye uh to everybody and to everything. Um this is because uh, we are we are departing our departure from this story um is in this way in my mind a kind of uh self-conscious departure um, on our part. It's a, it's, it's a very self-conscious ending. It's an ending which is very conscious of being an ending and wanting to emphasize to us uh, the fact that we are experiencing an ending, that this world that we have seen is passing. Um, you know, in part because, again, because of this, the pace of history within the book, but also because we're, 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 we're going to close the book, right? And then that age... Uh, will have passed, um, and our age is a new age, right? We can retain, we can we can plant the white tree in the middle of our own cities, but um, but we're in a different age, right? It's still, in the end, only a memory that we have. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, Yana says, I've always loved this low ending because uh, reaching the end of The Lord of the Rings is always a bittersweet moment. Um, yes, and it is, in that sense, a mercy that it's drawn out. And again, I think that's another point, is that it's not just the story, and it's not just the characters that we're saying goodbye to, it's the world. This has always been something that's been always been been so true of Tolkien's writing, and especially of The Lord of the Rings, but that he achieved more perfectly in The Lord of the Rings than in any of his other writings, was his love for this world that he had created and the love that he inspires in us, not just in the, the plot, not just in the characters, but in this world. Um, and we are given this final farewell tour back through the world until we leave um, from where we're... Uh, from where we began. Um... Yeah, Luke says, here ends our fellowship in Middle-earth, gets me every time. I agree, Luke. That was always one of the moments that really tugged at me, too, that moment. when when uh, Isn't it Gimli who says, I think that we shall not all be gathered in one place ever again? I'm always like... <gasps> you know, that's... Uh, that um, uh, always really struck me. Um, yeah, yeah, I thought that was Gimli. Um... Oh, interesting. Susan Cormier says, when I read the, uh, when I read The Lord of the Rings to my daughter, she wouldn't let me read the last chapter. So for her, the story would never be over. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure I can give up the Grey Havens, though. But, uh, but I totally sympathize, um, I totally sympathize with the impulse. Um, I have to, uh, um, yeah, yeah, I do definitely, uh, I do definitely, Sympathize, definitely sympathize with that impulse. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, good. Uh, as Luke points out, we have the appendices. Yes, indeed we do. Um, well, let me go on to, uh, as I could linger, as the book lingers over many of these things for a while, um, and there are certainly lots of other things that we can say, well, okay, no, 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 one thing I do have to talk about, because I haven't talked about it yet, is, of course, the very ending of the book, um, that the book doesn't end at the Grey Havens. Um, and you, th- I mean, if you think about it, I mean, just go back, I didn't put this passage uh, up on screen for you, but um, if you think about it, it would have made a good closing sentence, wouldn't it? Um, that is... Uh, and then it seemed to him that as uh, that as in his dream in the house of Bombadil, the gray rain curtain turned all to silver glass and was rolled back, and he beheld white shores, and beyond them a far green country under a swift sunrise. The end. That works, doesn't it? Wouldn't that be nice? Um, but no, that's not what we get, of course. Uh, the final line is, well, I'm back. Sam. Um, what do you make of that? What do you make of that? Why is that last line so important? I don't know if you did, but I cheered when the Return of the King film ended with Sam saying, well, I'm back. He wasn't sitting by the fire, which I, you know, regretted a little bit. But, uh, um, uh, but I, I know I was so happy to see it. Um, Rachel says, because fairy stories never end. Yeah, true, true. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Sarah King points out, Sam is Sam is still in the world, uh, and so are we. As Arthur says, um, Sam is the point of view. He is us, and he has just returned from the world of, of adventure to regular life, more so than more so than 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 Frodo did. Um, yes, Alyssa says it's the mix of, of, of ending and furtherance. We, we are moving forward, right? Sam is going to move forward. Of course, Sam is going to be like the white tree. He's got the red book, right? And it is going to serve for Sam and the Hobbits a similar role <clears throat> to what the white tree does in Gondor. It's not exactly the same, of course, but there's certainly there's that similar element of keeping alive the memories uh, of the times that were past. Um, it can't just end with the with the swift sunrise, because the ultimate trajectory of this is not out of the world. It's still in this world, um, and we are when we close the book, we don't have nothing, right? We have ourselves closing the book and putting it down, and that's like Sam, right? We are we are in the uh, in the in the in the position of Sam, but you notice also. It's a final gesture towards a kind of eucatastrophe. It's a gentle kind of eucatastrophe, right? Sam's domestic happiness, um, his being there at home in Bag End with Rosie and uh, you know, and his daughter, um, you know, and his his being, you know, and he was. I just I, I can't even. I don't want to. I don't want to misread it because it's it's so wonderful. I just love the description. And he went on, and there was yellow light and fire within, and the evening meal was ready, and he was expected. And Rose drew him in, and set him in his chair, and put little Eleanor upon his lap. He drew a deep breath. 
Well, I'm back, he said. And of course, the significance of that phrase in the context, well, I'm back, um, you know, he, he wanted to, he was saying, I wished I could go all the way with you, and, and Frodo's references to him needing to be whole, um, you know, him not to be torn in two anymore. He's now really back, and he's back where he belongs. Um, and uh, and that, again, um, uh, yes, of course, Carol and I agree, this is what they were fighting for. Um, you know, this is, if there is to be uh, any happiness, any happy endings, this is, uh, this is what the ending is supposed to be. Um, but, uh, but yet at the same time, again, if we're, if we are Sam, you know, if we are connected to Sam, if, uh, if Sam's returning home is like us closing the book, but hopefully not throwing it away, right? Um, us keeping it as Sam keeps the red book, keeping the memory alive, you know, having this connection to, uh, you know, the memories of the old, of the, of the elder days, um, it's, uh, it's, it's quite a, quite a positive, quite a happy, um, uh, position that we are put in parallel here as readers, um, that there's not just loss, but there's satisfaction. And it's in an, it's, it's with a note of fulfillment, with that sense of belonging, not of loss, um, of healing, uh, because Sam is healed there at the end. He still feels torn in two, right? Um, when he's, you know, he's he has that struggle in the last chapter. Um, this, of course, as Jan is reminding us, he uh, um, he is going to go to the Grey Havens himself in the end. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but that's not the ending of the Lord of the Rings. I think it's important that Tolkien didn't end it there. Um, uh, and I think the way that this course that that uh, the Sam domesticity ending cor- it, it sort of corresponds to Frodo's um, inability to rest and to be healed um, is really important because the message is not in the end simply the elder days are gone and therefore all of that is is no you know joy and happiness is all you know everything is trending down now and everything's going to be horrible from now on. No, no, there's still the fireside. There's still your chair and your child and uh, the evening meal and being expected and all of those wonderful things. Um, you know, we still, we, st- we are still left with that. And it's still a very good thing. Uh, even if Gandalf and Galadriel and Elrond and Bilbo and Frodo have all departed um, and will never return. Um, it's 11 o'clock so I'm making my should I go on to my next thing face Um, no I think I want to save this let me bring it up I'll tell you about it so you guys can be thinking about it we'll do it at the beginning of next time when we look at the appendices I want to talk about the scouring of the uh, the scouring of the shire in particular, the question is one of um, the question that I ask is one of allegory and applicability. Tolkien in the forward uh, reread the if you can the forward to the second edition 
uh, of the Lord of the Rings, where he talks about allegory and applicability. Um, and in particular, he addresses the impulse that people have to read uh, to read the Scouring of the Shire, in particular, allegorically. Um, and I want to look at that passage in particular, and then I'm going to go back and look at the Scouring of the Shire somewhat, um, because I think it's really interesting to think about it in those terms. In fact, I feel like um, there is nowhere in the Lord of the Rings where the issue of allegory and applicability comes up to me more powerfully than in the Scouring of the Shire. Um, I think it's not for no reason that people were talking about that. Um, and that's Tolkien felt he had to address that. Um, so I want to look at those things a little bit, in a little bit more detail. But we'll do that at the beginning of our appendices discussion, uh, rather than at the end. Let's, 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 let's go ahead and end with Sam and well, I'm back. That seems only appropriate. Um, so let's do that. And yeah, Luke, little spoiler, uh, turns out the ring is not the atomic bomb. That's, yeah, yeah, good call there. Um, so I'll see you guys next time. We're going to do Appendix A. Uh, so we're going to have two more classes. We're going to do the Appendix A for the first one and the rest of the appendices for the next class. Um, so because the uh, Appendix A, of course, is the is a really big one. So we're going to do Appendix A next time. So do read Appendix A, and we'll talk about we'll talk about the Scouring of the Shire, and we'll talk about that, uh, and you know that being Appendix A, and then we'll look at some of the other appendices, um, not all of them exhaustively, but we'll 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 look at the other appendices uh, for next time. So thanks very much, everybody, uh, and I will see you next week. We're back to Thursday again next week. So. Um, uh, we're, we're on Friday this week to avoid uh, Thanksgiving here in America, um, but we'll be back to Thursday next week. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, oh, uh, what time next Thursday? Next Thursday is going to be the, the 9.30 p.m. time, and then the last class uh, on Appendices B through F. Um, we will uh, uh, we'll go, go back to that. We'll do, be at the 4 o'clock p.m. Eastern Europe-friendly time uh, for our last class. So we'll be Europe-unfriendly uh, 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 next week, and then Europe-friendly in the last week. And then to Mythmoot, as Kay says. Yes, I should give a plug here at the end. Uh, for those of you who haven't yet, uh, there's still two weeks to sign up for Mythmoot, the conference that Mythgard is holding uh, this year uh, on the opening weekend of The Hobbit film. We'll watch the movie together in a private screening, and uh, we'll talk about the film, and, and uh, a bunch of people are giving real interesting papers and uh, and we're going to have special guests and there's going to be art and music and and a lot of fun it'll be a great time um, to have uh, you know sort of the mythgard blend of of a really good uh, stimulating uh, scholarship and discussion as well as uh, as well as really accessible fun uh, for everybody so if you haven't gotten a chance to uh, to look into it mythmoot is going to be happening uh, December the weekend of December 13th through 15th in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, I know it's a ways away for some of you. Um, nothing I can do about that. But uh, uh, but definitely, if you can, I urge you to look into it um, at our website, mythgard.org, M-Y-T-H-G-A-R-D.org. Um, on the events page there, you'll see all the information about Mythmoot. So I definitely urge you to look into that if you haven't yet. Um, but anyway, thanks very much, everybody. And we will see you guys next week. Uh, for Appendix A. Thanks very much. Bye.